Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Yeah, this weather, I was, I was saying earlier, this, anytime this weather hits like this, I want to go to, I've got two older uh, kids who are in school down in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's where I want to be. I want to be in Phoenix right now. I don't know how many of you, John is like a, a, a rabid nut baseball fan, but I don't know how many of you know what, what starts uh, a month from tomorrow. Spring training, <clears throat> that's right, <clears throat> spring training, <clears throat> and uh, the Thursday, February 22nd is the kickoff of it when the Dodgers play their National League West rivals, the Padres, in Peoria, Arizona. In fact, the day after that, the National League champion Diamondbacks are playing our own Colorado Rockies at 1.10 p.m. <clears throat> when they open up the Cactus League play <clears throat> and uh, it, I don't know if you've ever been to a spring training, the Salt River Fields. I've got a lot of friends who, who go there who love it, who are deeply passionate about it. And they tell me spring training is so amazing <clears throat> because it's, it's when baseball awakens for the year in the desert of Arizona. And you've got 15 major league teams that converge on these fields to the crack of bats and the rustle of palm trees. <laughs> and the city of Phoenix, 1.6 million people, has, <clears throat> has an insurgence of 300,000 visitors for spring training every year when this happens. Why do I tell you that? Well, we're looking at, a, at an account this morning in the capital city of Jerusalem. It's only twenty to 30,000, but they have half the number of visitors who come to spring training come to this little town. 150,000 people descend on the city of Jerusalem. Why is that? Because it's Passover. Passover is what they call a foot festival. Uh, meaning you travel, you walk on foot <clears throat> to back to the city where if you live all over the Mediterranean world, you come back to the capital, to the temple, to where the presence of God is for this particular festival. And by this time, both the um, festival of um, Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, these were two totally separate festivals in the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus, they've been combined, sort of mashed together. It's kind of like Christmas and New Year's. For us, they're sort of kind of all in one. But it's this huge festival that brings in a huge number of people, and the city swells to six times its normal size. And so what we have here, kind of staying with the baseball imagery in the Gospel of Mark, is Jesus has just rounded third base, and he's heading toward home. And in his mission for the cross, 
As he rounds third base, he enters what's called passion week. Now, in English, you know, we tend to, th- I, I hear the word passion, and I think of like, oh, I'm passionate about something, like great excitement. But passion actually comes from a Latin word meaning great suffering, great trial, great ordeal. And so typically when Christians speak about passion week of Jesus, <clears throat> the passion of Jesus typically starts in the Garden of Gethsemane and ends at the cross. Sometimes it'll include the uh, meal before the Last Supper the night before and ending at the cross. But here we're headed for home plate in Mark chapter 14. If you have your scripture open, we'll turn to it in just a minute here. But in Mark chapter 14, when he's heading toward home, something has changed. The air is different. It's colder. It's stale. It speaks of Jesus' impending doom, his suffering. And you might think, well, heading toward home, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, but, but home plate is the cross. And it's good, like Good Friday is good, but it's still the cross. And if Mark chapter 14 is heading toward home base, rounding third base was Mark chapter 8. I don't know if you remember this passage, but third base was Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if you remember that. Jesus goes there to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, if, you, if you've ever gone with us on some of our trips to Israel, you'll, you'll remember Caesarea Philippi is this huge rock outcropping. And it's like the epicenter of paganism. It has deep, dark roots. Even in the Old Testament, it's in the area of Bashan, great evil was done there. You go there and you see the remains of a, of a temple to the Greek god Zeus, it was, it was called the Grotto of Pan. Pan was the Greek god. We have words like pandemonium, panic. Pan was the god who brought chaos. So Jesus rounded third base, going to Caesarea Philippi, a place of deep, dark, spiritual chaos and darkness, and he picks a fight there. If you remember, he's always keeping his identity secret. And then he goes to Caesarea Philippi and he goes, who do people say that I am? You remember that question? Yes, his followers, yes, yes. And he goes, Peter, how about you? Who do you say I am? Well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the most high God. And he goes, you got it, that's right. And he says, and guess what? On these rocks, the rock outcroppings of Caesarea Philippi, I'm gonna build my church. The home of evil it's gonna become their tomb. That's third base. He picked a fight with the dark forces of evil and he is now heading toward Jerusalem for the impending doom. And we're told that after that, he turned his face, right after he turned his face toward Jerusalem, it says, and then he began teaching his disciples, I must suffer many things and I will die and I'll be rejected by the religious leaders, but I will rise on the third day. And they didn't get it. They couldn't put it together. They couldn't connect all the, got, all the dots. This brings us to Mark chapter 14, to our passage today. He's rounding third base, <clears throat> heading for home. In Mark chapter 14, and before we look at it, let me tell you what to look for in the passage. Because Mark is an intelligent writer. He's brilliant how he sculpts 
things. This is what's called one of these sandwich passages. Sandwich passage is where Mark begins talking about one story, like a piece of bread, and then he inserts a different story, like some meat, and then he comes back to the original story like another piece of bread. That's why commentators call this a sandwich passage. And the death of Jesus in this particular passage, it's just in the air wherever you go in the narrative. But what's so interesting is the plotters, what the plotters of evil intend for evil, God intends for good. So ironically, those who are plotting against Jesus are actually cooperating in helping Jesus accomplish his mission as giving his life as a ransom for many. So this sandwich is the devotion of a woman in the middle, sandwiched or bracketed by two accounts of deceit. Here we go. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. <clears throat> For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, there's the deceit. Now comes the interruption, a story of devotion. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, <clears throat> store this away, would you? I want to come back to this. Whose house is he at? Simon the leper. Put that away. I want to come back to that at the end. He was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. <clears throat> there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay? Then he comes back to the first story of deceit. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at three key issues in this text of understanding, and then look at some direct points of application for us. The three key issues, I want us to consider these various anointing stories in different gospels, and how do we understand that? Secondly, I want us to look at Jesus' comment about the poor, it's often been misunderstood. And then finally, the significance of the anointing. So just a brief word first about these various anointing stories. If you've 
if you've read the Gospels, you've, you've come across them. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have anointing stories. And there's some question as to, are these the same story being retold by someone else? Are they, are they different accounts? This passage in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, pretty much identical. A few other details from one to the other, but they clearly seem to be the same anointing. But we're not told the woman's name. We don't know why. Mark and Matthew are quite early. Maybe the gospel authors are wanting to preserve her name for some particular reason, or just maybe they want to focus on Jesus. But John tells us the story, John 12. John's written much later, and he gives us the name. It's Mary of Bethany. That is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But then there's another anointing story, Luke chapter 7. We're told this, this woman is a sinful woman. She has a notorious past. And she comes in and anoints Jesus. And oftentimes people read these passages and sort of attribute, oh, that must be Mary. So she must be the sinful woman. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this is a different account. She is unnamed in that particular passage but there are different ways of thinking about these particular anointings. Number two, I want to look at Jesus' comment about the poor. Remember, look at verse seven. He says, the poor will always be with you, but you won't always have me. Does this seem heartless to you? Does it seem like he's almost shrugging off the poor? Like he's, he's not necessarily saying they're of ultimate importance or extreme importance? And people have oftentimes looked at this particular passage and sort of built that case. But I want to make three observations that I don't think that is the case. First of all, Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. Listen to Deuteronomy 15.11. It says this, there will always be the poor in your land. Next verse, therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Do you get it? He's quoting a passage that says that you'll always have the poor, not therefore don't worry about it, therefore engage, be open-handed, be inclined toward them. Second observation under this question of the poor, his language needs to be read in light of his words like the parable of the marriage banquet. Remember back in chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, Jesus told a story. He says, this is what we read. John the, disciples, uh, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they're all fasting. And people came to him and said, why did like John's disciples and the Pharisees, like they fast, but your, your disciples celebrate and they don't fast. In verse 19, Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them and when they will fast in that day. Jesus is contrasting this moment. And he's saying, you guys, this moment is a unique moment in God's salvation history. And it's, it's absolutely appropriate for excessiveness in this moment. 
Third observation, his comment, you will always have the poor with you. Uh, you can take care of them anytime you want. He's actually saying that, we find out from John's gospel to Judas, who we find out doesn't give a rip about the poor. So what he's telling him is, oh, you care about the poor? Because remember, you know, you know, Judas just goes like, oh, we should you know, take care of the poor. Jesus knows you don't really care about the poor. He goes, oh, you can do that anytime you want. How's that going, by the way? Listen to John's gospel, John 12, 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John says, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to it anytime he wanted. Jesus knew the intent of the question. And what he was saying to Judas was, you really care about the poor? How's that going? You can take care of them any time you want. We have a money bag, and you can take care of them any time. Jesus is calling out Judas's hypocrisy. Now, let me make a little bit of application for us today. There is danger. There is danger anytime a movement virtue signals. Do you know what virtue signaling is? It's when you feign care about something and so you say it verbally, like Judas is doing. Oh, we should care about the poor. You virtue signal verbally, but in reality, you don't do it. Let me give you two examples. One is in the church and one is outside of the church. One is in the church. I I grew up in a church which was uh, heavily influenced by the prosperity gospel. You know what that is? The word of faith message. It was, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and, and wise, whatever you'd say. Basically, he wants utopia for you right now. And you can have it. You just have to actualize it in different things. And so it was all about giving to get. Give to the church, and then God will give back to you. And there were names like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, some of the big ones. And I named them because you know what? In 1 Timothy, Paul names people who were unfaithful to the gospel. And it was this scheme of saying, give in order to get. It was completely inappropriate. It was people who were feigning care for the kingdom of God, when in reality, they cared about their benefit. That was one in the church. Let me give you one outside of the church. There was an organization that in 2020 called BLM, they released their 990 tax forms. They collected $80 million. Guess how much of that $80 million went to the people they claimed they were helping, this BLM organization? Yeah, it was the same thing. It was virtue signaling, saying we care about this, give, but in reality, it was all about the benefit that came to them. And what was revealed is the organizers of this BLM, they were simply Marxists, <laughs> utilizing and exploiting people. And here's the point, be aware, be aware, my friends, of organizations and of people who claim to care about others, but it's really only for the benefit of themselves. Jesus points it out here of Judas. We have numerous cases in our own day. We need to be sure we don't do that ourselves, we don't find that ourselves, and that we don't 
unquestioningly give to those groups who are doing this exact thing. One last observation under this question of the poor. The word Bethany, the town name, it means house of the poor or house of the inflicted. It's very possible that this was actually a community that looked after the poor. It's very likely this was a community which brought together those who were around who said, you're destitute, you're afflicted. This was a community who cared deeply for the broken and those around them. Third observation I want us to make is the significance of the anointing itself. We're told it was pure nard. This is perfume from India, very expensive. We're told it's 300 days wages. Now, when you think about that, these are people who work six days a week. So you take away the other weekends and holidays. This is 365 days. This is a year's salary. Think about how much you made last year or think about how much it cost for you to live last year. And that's the cost of this particular item. It's probably an heirloom, it's very likely, maybe in case they fell upon uh, very difficult times and they were destitute, they had a nest egg, they had something they could rely on, something that they knew, well, at least we won't die. This is something that we have. And we're told in verse three, she breaks it. This is interesting. An alabaster vessel, you would take like a cork out on the top, you would turn it over, and based on the shape of it, how it was designed, it would just drip out so you wouldn't, it wouldn't come rushing out. She doesn't want to waste the time of standing there for 20 minutes, letting it drip, so she breaks it and pours it all on Jesus, and it says the aroma fills the house. And Jesus says, this was done almost prophetically, unknowingly, she almost didn't even know it, for my burial. Jesus sees this as something his followers won't get right now. They'll get it later. They'll connect the dots. In fact, it's interesting, Jesus orchestrates so many different things in the Gospels, if you read them. He orchestrates so many different things that he knows this is gonna fly right by my students. They won't get it now, but they will get it in the future. The Holy Spirit will help them later, years from now. They'll start going, remember, remember that moment? Remember when that happened? Remember, oh my goodness. Like these, wow. In fact, Jesus says that. Listen to John 13, 7. Jesus replied, you don't, he's talking to his students, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Or he says this in John 14, 26. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and I love this, and he will remind you of everything I said to you. <laughs> because in the future, you're gonna, you're gonna start connecting dots. And you're gonna be like, oh my goodness. You remember when that happened? You remember when this happened? Why do I say that? Because here's one of the dots that Mark wants the, the careful reader to connect and to understand in this story. It's interesting, the way he tells this story in 
chapter 14. And the way he tells another story back in chapter 12, it's, it's much more obvious in the Greek, but he uses language that it's like, oh, you're like using the exact same, you're like copy and pasting. <laughs> so you're, you're sort of using the same and you have both women in the scenarios and both of them give all they have. So I'm supposed to look at these two stories and sort of think of them together. Does that make sense? Do you remember the story? Mark chapter 12, verse 44, there's a widow who goes to the temple. She's very poor. And she gives two coins. <clears throat> We're told in the mission of this Jewish literature that the, the giving receptacles at the temples were, were metal and they were shaped like a trumpet. Can you picture like a trumpet coming up? You know what happens when you throw money in the top of a trumpet? The sound that it makes? Right? The more money you pour in, the more sound. This woman comes in, she gives how many? Two coins. Clink, clink. Everyone hears it. This is why Jesus goes, do you hear that? Do you see that? She gave two, and this is what Jesus says. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, because they would have heard it. Everyone would have heard that. It's sort of embarrassing. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in, and here's, here's, the, here's the cut and copy and paste phrase from chapter 14, everything she had, all she had to live on. These two extravagant gifts, you're supposed to see a parallel. Do you see it? <clears throat> Back in chapter 12, Jesus comes to the temple. He condemns the temple and says it's going to be destroyed, right? Then a woman gives all she has. Chapter 14, it's a similar story. This woman came to the temple that's going to be destroyed and gave all she had. You see it? Chapter 14, Mary comes to the temple of Jesus' body. It's going to be destroyed and gives all she had. And you're supposed to think about those two. You're supposed to interpret those two together. You're supposed to ruminate and meditate on those two realities. That this is someone who comes to the temple that's going to be destroyed and gives everything. It's an act of absolute adoration. And Mark is drawing your attention to who Jesus is. Jesus is the temple, the very presence of God. John chapter 1 says, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He is the temple of God. He's the very presence of God. And Mark wants you to think about that. He wants you to see it. He wants you to come to grips with that. That's why Mary's response is so appropriate. It's extravagant, but appropriate appropriate because she adores the one where the very presence of God is. And Mark's point here is this. Everyone adores something. Everyone worships something. Uh, <clears throat> maybe, maybe you know these lyrics. 
You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to... Anyone know? Serve somebody, in the words of Bob Dylan. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan's point, Mary's point, and the widow's point, and Jesus' point is the same. You are made to worship. You can't help but adore something in life. You can't help but make something the center of your life, and you will adore that thing. One last point. I asked you to kind of store this away. Do you remember whose house he's at? Simon the what? Simon the leper. Now, this is interesting. Clearly, Simon is not currently a leper. They wouldn't be having a meal with him. So this means Simon is a former leper, right? I wish I knew the story. <laughs> There's some story. It's probably most likely that he encountered the person of Jesus who healed him. And he's now the former leper. I, I tell you this because <clears throat> it's, it's helpful if you think of skin diseases the way ancient people did. We don't think of it the same way, so it's kind of lost on us. <clears throat> I have, a, I have a skin eczema, hand eczema sometimes, and so certain parts of the year I've got to use ointment, that sort of stuff. And, um, in the ancient world, a skin disease, here's how they thought about it. <clears throat> the way they buried their dead was they would take their dead, they would anoint their bodies with tons of perfume because of the odor. They would put them in some sort of a cavity, typically in a tomb. They would let the skin deteriorate for a year. They'd come back after a year, collect the bones, put them in a bone box or an ossuary, and that's what was preserved. But they observed the skin decaying incrementally over a year. You know what skin decay looks like if this is your practice of burial. A person with a skin disease like leprosy, you're dying while alive. You're a member of the walking dead, is the point. This is why people were so horrified by skin diseases. Because you're dying while alive. You're a member of the walking dead. What's so amazing here is that as we look at Simon, who similarly to Mary, is lavish. He says, I want to throw you a party, Jesus. I'm guessing because it's because he intersected with Jesus at some point in the past. I don't know the story. I wish I did. He intersected with Jesus at some point. Because of that intersection, he's no longer a member of the walking dead. He's now among the living. And because he had tethered his life to the person of Jesus, that's the only reason He's no longer a member of the walking dead. And that is this situation that brings up the question that is posed to us. Everyone is devoted to something. What is it? What is it that you are most devoted to? And, and, and you know, here's that question that I want to ask you. And again, don't answer it now. <laughs> this week, spend some time. What are you ultimately devoted to? What is your, what's at the center? What's your ultimate point? 
of dedication? And have you made that commitment to the one who takes you out of the walking dead into life? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who steps into the lives of the walking dead. You intersect us. You pull us out. You redeem. You are the God who rounds third base and heads toward home, the cross, to conquer death, to conquer brokenness, to conquer sin, and then rose again and now offers that life-giving reality to us. Father, for those who are in this room who, who have already made that step, who have encountered Jesus and are now no longer a member of the walking dead, may this be a point as they, as they stare into 2024 of just a recommitment, of an assertion of believing loyalty to the Most High God. And for anyone here who would say, maybe I, I haven't made that, I'm, I'm still a member of the walking dead because I have not intersected with the person of Jesus. May this be a moment right now in which they fully surrender to you, lay down self-control, and give control to you. May, would your spirit come and inhabit them and empower them for life. Father, I'm grateful for what you're calling us to in our world. Thank you for the impact that Timberland Windsor is making here in our own city, impacting even some of these young mothers and young fathers who are making critical decisions about the future of their children's lives. God, show us the best way to serve and to care. May we be like this city, which cares for the broken. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.